0: At length, a universal hubbub wild of stunning sounds and voices all confused, born through the hollow dark, assaults his ear with loudest vehemence.
1: Thither he plies undaunted to meet there whatever power or spirit of the nethermost abyss might in that noise reside. Of whom to ask which way the nearest coast of darkness lies, bordering on light, when straight behold the throne of chaos and his dark pavilion spread wide on the wasteful deep. With him
0: enthroned sat sable vested knight, eldest of things, the consort of his reign, and by them stood Orcus and Aedes, and the, the dreaded, dreaded name, name of Demogorgon.
1: Demogorgon. Rumor next, and chance, and tumult, and confusion all embroiled, and discord with a thousand various mouths. <laughs> Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick, and I'm so excited. It's my favorite time of the year. It's October, which is my favorite month of the year anyway, but it's also my favorite time of the year at work because it's Monster Month here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind.
1: That's right. When we devote the entire month of October, and sometimes a little change, uh, to topics that uh, are either obsessed with monsters or, or darkness or horror or terror or anything even remotely uh, Halloween-y. Uh, we we just fully embrace it. It's the most wonderful time of the year, and so in you know, as we were coming up with episodes to record this year, where we you know our minds turn to things we've covered in the past. Mm-hmm. So on, on one hand, uh, there's an old episode of the show about the mind flayers of Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. uh, and it's led various uh, folks to request another episode dealing with something from the world of Dungeons and Dragons. And likewise, uh, last year we did an episode on the Great Basilisk, uh, where we talk about. Uh, uh, this concept of uh, not only the monstrous basilisk, but this kind of uh, you know, tech world, futuristic uh, vision of an all-powerful, uh, malevolent uh, AI. And so we decided we'd, we'd up the ante this year and discuss uh, an entity that kind of combines both of these themes. Uh, and, and so we're going to talk about the Demogorgon. Now, I would not be surprised if the largest portion of you out there are familiar with the idea of a
0: Demogorgon primarily from the recent Netflix show Stranger Things. I guess it's mainly the first season of that, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, the it, – it keeps popping up as well, uh, but it's mainly that, that first excellent season of Stranger Things, uh, and uh, and I think that's a good place to start, like the most recent pop culture incarnation of the Demogorgon. It's probably one of the best new cinematic monsters that we've encountered in recent years. Uh, you know, this category confusion entity that's at once humanoid and bestial, but at times he's bipedal, and other times it's, it's crawling around on all fours. It's like a Venus flytrap minotaur. Yeah, that's the other cool aspect of it. It's uh, it's it's. Head- Head, at times, looks like a featureless mask of flesh, but then it opens up in these these flower petals, these kind of uh, you know razor toothed flower petals around this gaping maw.
0: Uh, but I also like that it's a dimension hopper, right? Which kind of means it, it, it's
1: always, it could pop up anywhere. Yeah, it travels through dimensions. Though, though I'm, I'm uncertain if that's part of its natural abilities, because we, we see it feeding on an egg in its own dimension at one point. Uh, and perhaps it takes to hunting in our world due to the the weakening of the connection between the two, mm-hmm. uh, you know, due to mad science, of course. Right. Um, but if this is the case, it's still quite proficient at traveling between the worlds through those rips and tears to acquire food
0: right so it could actually be a rather mundane predator in its own world it's just that matthew modine and his psychic projects uh unleashed this predator into it made it an invasive species in our world
1: right yeah yeah like like it, it does pretty well in its own world but here it can really go at it you it's know It's like a superman with the yellow sun yeah but of course, in Stranger Things, we also uh, learn that the, the kids in the, in the story, they name this creature the Demogorgon because they are actively playing Dungeons and Dragons. And they, and, and they are playing a campaign that involves the Demogorgon, uh, this, uh, this prince of demons, this mighty demon lord of just immense power.
0: Now, Robert, I know that you have a reputation as a quite cruel dungeon master yourself. No. So do you subject your adventuring travelers to a Demogorgon every now and then?
1: No not not no not yet and it's not really <laughs> the kind of thing you would you would inflict on your adventures in a haphazard fashion. It oh. is one of the most powerful entities in the game. Okay. So it's it's the kind of thing you cap off an entire campaign with, that you would only throw it, uh, you know, at higher level, like really high level characters. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess you could throw it in haphazardly if you have just kind of a very casual game where people have like just immensely powerful characters and each week you just battle some things that are tremendously powerful to just see how it all shakes out. But um, for instance in the the campaign out of the abyss uh which is a, a campaign that i've been uh, playing in my group uh, that i've been uh, dungeon mastering for about 4 years now we are almost at the point where the demogorgon may be encountered oh yeah so we've been building up to it do you have demogorgon cue music ready to go when it happens basically i mean it's a it's a big deal it's uh it, you know we have a, an enormous figurine that uh, we've been putting together it's a uh, it's huge.
0: Okay. Well, in the Dungeons and Dragons world, what is this Demogorgon creature? It's obviously nothing like what's in Stranger Things. Like the, It's not a Venus flytrap minotaur.
1: Right. So in Dungeons and Dragons, the Demogorgon dates back to 1976. That's when this entity um, originated in a supplement titled Eldrick Wizards by Gary Gygax himself and Brian Bloom. And uh, if you look around online, you can find this in PDF form, Uh, and it has some you know some adorably kind of uh, crude illustrations of what the various creatures would look like. Those, those, those the, the illustrations in Dungeons and Dragons have come a long way. Uh-huh. Uh, like the most, like the earliest version of the demogorgon that uh, is illustrated in this book is just crude sketch of this, uh, this kind of two headed, tentacle armed, uh, chicken footed thing with baboon heads, right? Yeah, with baboon heads. But the, like, but from- it's
0: cute. I mean, it's like. It's kind of like the monsters in the Rankin and Bass Middle Earth
1: animation. Yeah, and of course, you know, part most the big thing about Dungeons and Dragons is it it does take place in the mind, and especially uh. early on, they did they didn't have elaborate illustrations. You were supposed to, uh, you know, come up with it yourself. But today we have elaborate illustrations. The most recent uh, fifth edition illustrations of the Demogorgon are just absolutely beautiful. Uh, where it it seems like there's a like a burning sun inside of the the creature. Uh, but I want to read just a quick description from that original 1976 supplement to to properly describe what the creature looks like because ba- the basic description has not changed. Okay, melt my mind with terror. Okay. Uh, quote uh, Gygax and Bloom here. Uh, it is uh, contended by some that this demon lord is supreme, and in any event, he is awesome in his power. This gigantic demon is 18 tall and reptilian. His skin is plated with snow Snake like scales. His body and legs are those of a giant lizard. His twin necks resemble snakes, and his thick tail is forked. Demogorgon has two heads which bear the visages of evil baboons or perhaps mandrills. Rather than having arms, he has great tentacles. His appearance testifies to his command of cold blooded things such as serpents, reptiles, and octopi
0: and Robert you brought in a glorious figurine that i now hold in my
1: hand it's uh it's very nice yeah well this is a small one the, the big one i couldn't even bring in because it's just it's, it's too enormous it would alarm people uh, and they, they would wonder what was about to befall them. Uh, so, so, yeah, basically this description, though, holds up. It's been tweaked a little bit. I think at one point the heads were more hyena-like because, as I mentioned earlier, we've had various editions of Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, we're on edition five at this point. Uh, and, uh, and, and each edition has brought about various changes to the rules, to the mechanic, to the lore, and we'll get into some of that in a minute as it relates to Demogorgon. Um, and the art, too, has mostly gotten just tremendously better over the years. Uh, and again, the most recent fifth edition art is absolutely splendid to behold. But of course, uh, another thing to keep in mind is that the, the Demogorgon is a demon, a demon lord. Mm-hmm. And given the moral panics surrounding supposed Satanists and the, the, the quote unquote dangers of D&D back in the 1980s, the various demons and devils in the game lore uh, lost their titles at one point. Uh, so when I originally started playing back in the the 90s, uh, these various devils and demons were known as uh, uh, the Tenari uh, uh, instead of actually referring to them as demons. Oh, OK. Yeah, so I see. De- so it's a rebrand. Yeah, it was a rebrand because everyone was freaking out about uh, imagined Satanists, uh, uh, which uh, I think we've discussed on the show before. um you know, the the, the the satanism as presented in the satanic panic of the 80s uh did not exist mm-hmm. uh, no one no one has actual no ritual um you know sacrificial uh, worship of uh, Satan has has occurred in human history, uh, certainly not on the organized scale that uh, that you see uh, uh, described in some of these uh, moral panics. But uh, but anyway, yeah, the, de- the demonic edge was taken off the game for a while, and if you wished to invoke uh, such entities, you had to you had to bust out an older monster manual. Uh, thankfully, the demons of the abyss and the devils of the nine hells have made the return, and Demogorgia himself is is not only back but he's the, he's a cover baddie you know he's he's there on the cover of uh, out of the abyss and is the, uh, uh, the the creature that you battle at the very end and uh, you know he's uh, he's he's not only fearsome physically he's also a highly intelligent entity he has a, an, an intelligence score of 20 uh, which is uh, you know like, like top of the d20 oh okay how high does it go is 20 the the most intelligent? Yeah, 20 is 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 tremendously uh, impressive. It's like a John von Neumann kind of thing. Like it's I think it's like a 10 is uh, is more in keeping with like you know sort of average human intelligence and, uh. and this thing is beyond that. Uh, like 18 is is like really high for a starting character in uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, a starting mortal character.
0: But the Demogorgon does not use this intelligence for the good of humankind. The Demogorgon is going to what? Is going to design the most nefarious financial
1: instruments that have <laughs> ever been uh, imagined. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's, he's completely uh, chaotically evil. Um, he's also known as the Sibilant Beast and the Master of the Spiraling Depths. And uh, oh, and those two heads, each one has a name in Dungeons & Dragons lore. One is Amiul and the other is uh, Hathoradia. Uh I guess I don't know that anyone ever actually speaks to one head or the other. You just kind of speak to the demogorgon. Maybe that's a way to beat it. You get them fighting each other. Maybe I don't know. I mean, it basically he's this wonderful embodiment of like chaos and disorder, and uh, I you know I think he he wonderfully uh, you know embodies the sense of maddening division, kind of a perfect demon for modern times especially. And I also like to think of the two heads as representing like the different hemispheres of the brain.
0: You know? Oh, okay. So maybe only one of them can do uh, complex language. Maybe so.
1: Yeah. Uh, but, but also I like the idea that the demon lords like are these mighty things, but perhaps they exist because they're, they're like the accumulated runoff of all like human inequity, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course there are other demon lords as well, and they all plot against each other in war eternally. They, they represent different depths of moral sin. So Demogorgon's most prominent rivals are Orcus, uh, the demon lord of undeath, uh, as well as the demon lord of perversion, Grazit. Uh, and the master of lies, Frazer Blue. Uh, but he's also opposed by Bahamut, uh, Yenogu, and then, of course, Jubilex and Zuptmoy, who we've uh, mentioned in passing on the show before.
0: Wait, so one of his rivals is Orcus. Now, we began this episode with a reading yeah. from John Milton's Paradise Lost in which the name Orcus is invoked. They don't really explain. Uh, Milton doesn't go into who Orcus is there, but... Uh, so I, I didn't expect Orcus to come back also in the, the D&D lore here.
1: Yeah, I mean Orcus was a Roman god of the underworld uh, who punished oath breakers. And, uh, oh, and by the way, he also has his own uh, designated trans uh object, uh, uh, N-0482 Orcus. Uh, not all demon lords can make that claim that they actually have uh, uh, some sort of uh, you know, cosmic body named after them. <laughs> Uh, but this gets to the point that that D and D is this wonderful mix of influences, fusing various 20th century fantasy and sci fi works with uh, mythology and flow and folklore to create its worlds. So. That's So Orcus obviously comes from Roman mythology. Uh, there are other creatures. We mentioned Bahamut. Bahamut is the entity that the Knights Templars were accused of worshiping in the 14th century and were subsequently eradicated for. Uh, so you know that's where that name uh, comes from. But then there's Demogorgon to consider. And, uh, and obviously the name predates Dungeons and Dragons because it, it pops up in Paradise Lost. Yeah.
0: So you would, I think, obviously expect given— The word demogorgon, that this is something from Greek mythology, right? Just sounds yeah. like something straight out of Greek mythology. Yeah, the
1: Gorgons were, uh, of course, like, like Medusa. Mm-hmm. So you might think, oh, well, this is some uh, this is some Greek monster that gets turned into a god at some point.
0: But despite what you would think from the name, you will not find the Demogorgon in ancient Greek mythology. You flip through the works of Homer, labors of Hercules, myths of Manalippus, cults of Athena or Apollo. You're going to find no Demogorgon anywhere. So where does this beast come from?
1: Well— We've, we've considered pop culture. We've considered uh, you know, a, current, a 21st century Netflix show. We've considered uh, a 20th century role-playing game. Mm-hmm. So what we're going to do is we're going to dive deeper. And we're going to go into the literary world and continue to follow, uh, follow the shadow of Demogorgon through the spiraling depths. But first, we're going to take a break. <laughs> Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
2: All right, we're back.
0: All right, so we've been talking about the monster, the Demon Lord, the Demogorgon, as it is represented in Dungeons and & Dragons, and Robert has some experience with that, but uh, we now have said that we need to go deeper because we're trying to figure out where this monster came from if it doesn't come from what you would guess based on its name, Greek mythology.
1: Right, and our next step is to look at its very vari- the, the, the the way its name is invoked in various uh, works of literature. So uh, one of the, the books I was looking at on, on this count was uh, is a book called called Dangerous Games, What the Moral Panic Over Role-Playing Games Says About Play, Religion, and Imagined Worlds by Joseph P. Laycock. And, uh, this, is, this is an interesting-looking book that I really want to read more from. Uh, but uh, the author mentions that Demogorgon pops up in a number of early, modern, and romantic works. Uh, interestingly enough, Laycock also highlights an author and RPG name uh, that I've brought up on the show before, R. Barker. M.A.R. Um, Barker you know the, uh, this he 's this uh, guy who is known for uh, creating these books in this role playing world uh, of uh, of Tucumel which is this fantasy, it's the sci-fi fantasy world that uh, depends less, far less on Western models of, of history and religion and, uh, and myth and more on East Asian models. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you're into fantasy, I recommend picking up those books. They're a little old-fashioned in some respects, like they're very much in the mold of like kind of a swashbuckling, uh, you know, male-centered uh, adventure. Yeah. But the world that he created uh, is really something to behold. Uh, but anyway, he he uh, he points out quote the prominence of original fantasy religions in D and D as opposed to adaptations of Christian saints and demons can be attributed largely to the influence of M A R Barker uh, because uh, Barker was uh, was very you know active in that whole scene at the time these various individuals like Gygax and others who were creating these role playing worlds. But
0: as should be clear from us talking about John Milton, the Demogorgon is not something that is a purely created uh, you know, fantasy religion creature. It actually does have more of a history. It goes back into Christian mythology in right. some way. So again, whence the Demogorgon? Can we trace it back through literature?
1: Yeah, well, let's look at some of the key examples of literary Demogorgon that pop up. Well, let's start with Milton's Paradise Lost. Uh, we read that fantastic quote from it in our cold open. Uh, P- Paradise Lost is, of course, the masterpiece of John Milton, who lives 1608 through 1674, in who he, which he sets no higher goal than to, quote, justify the ways of God to man, uh, which I, <laughs> I always love that. Like, it just just really going for it with this work you know Uh Um, and to achieve this uh, lofty goal uh, he retells the creation and the angelic fall and the fall of man and in doing so creates a Satan that is uh, in some people's eyes um, problematically uh, sympathetic and tragic
0: yeah now I think you can easily say that Milton was not like sympathetic towards Satan. He was a devout, devoted right. yes. Protestant Christian.
1: But I've seen, but, I've seen that criticism uh, leveled at him, uh, particularly in I, – when I was growing up reading some uh, – particularly uh, various uh, like Christian fundamentalist uh, views of demonology and the treatment of de- demons and angels in literature uh-huh. uh, that would charge – that like, oh, Milton made uh, – he, he made Satan way too likable.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think if you've got no tolerance at all, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, then then yeah, it might might go too far for you. But I think one thing he sets out to achieve and does in Paradise Lost is he shows sin as as uh, going astray, you know, mm-hmm. as, as folly, as like following uh, following a misguided path and not always just kind of this like. Uh, Indefinable miasma of horribleness. Yeah, people often like to think of the devil as like something you can't even look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Milton's devil, I mean, the 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 kind of scary thing about the devil in classic conceptions of it is that he is seductive and that he makes good arguments.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, again, I mean, Demogorgon in D anD D has that intelligence of twenty, wisdom of seventeen. Uh, you'd expect as much uh, at least uh, from Satan.
0: Yeah. Now, in Paradise Lost, of course, Satan, ultimately, he loses a war in heaven. He falls down with his demons. They get cast into hell. They have a big debate about what to do about this. Some demons counsel that they should, you know, take up arms. I think Moloch says, let's go fight again. Mm-hmm. Some say, you know, we're down here. We can just, let's make the best of it. You know, hell's not so bad. <laughs> and, uh, but, but Satan gets this idea. He's going to get revenge by by corrupting God's
1: favorite creation, the human, and spoiler—he uh, pulls it off. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, this epic poem—you can say, you can almost think of it as kind of a reboot, or kind of like a. An amazing piece of, of uh, you know, biblical fan fiction mm-hmm. where he fleshes out this idea of a war in heaven and he adds in all sorts of dramatic and gnarly details. Uh, one I always liked is that he forges a sword for the archangel Michael uh, that is uh, powerful enough to cut through anything, including the flesh of other angels. God forges the sword, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, who did I say forged it? Oh, I thought it, it sounded like you were saying Satan did. Oh, okay. Well, I'm I'm probably thinking of Sauron too because we just did that episode of <laughs> right. the Ring. But no, to, to be clear, God made the sword. Yeah, uh, that's great. Well, I mean, I feel
0: like there's so much stuff in Paradise Lost and. Uh, we were talking before we came on uh, into the studio here about uh, Dante as well, mm-hmm. where there are these great works of literature within the, the Christian literary tradition that get incorporated into people's theology. Like they forget that stuff that's just in Paradise Lost isn't actually in the Bible.
1: Right, yeah, and, and we can thank Dante for the, pretty much the whole concept of, of purgatory becoming so prominent in, uh, in Western traditions. But, um, but yeah, so, so in, in creating uh, Paradise Lost Milton, he drags in a number of names and develops some more demon names that do pop up in the Bible like uh, Beelzebub, Belial, Mammon, Moloch. But then he also drags in Orcus and Demogorgon. And then there are seemingly new creations like uh, Mulsiber, uh, the architect of Pandemonium, the capital of hell. Uh-huh. So Demogorgon is mentioned in book two, and we, you heard it at the start of this episode, and this is a, a section of uh, Paradise Lost that describes Satan's voyage out of hell with sin and death. So the Demogorgon is basically a background player. It's texture. Yeah. Just add a little texture to the scene as Satan crosses the wilds of chaos and night that span the void between heaven and hell.
0: And there are other literary invocations of the Demogorgon that I would say are basically the same. They use the Demogorgon not as a major figure of significance, but something as sort of texture to establish that a place is sort of ultimately abandoned by God and and wretched. Yeah, Like it's just really horrible. And another great example of this is the way the Demogorgon is invoked in Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. Uh, So if you've never read it, The Fairy Queen is also – it's like Paradise Lost, an English epic poem. Uh, It's from the 16th century, so it's earlier than Paradise Lost. And it's this really long poem about virtues and the adventures of chivalrous knights. It's one of those that's, uh, you know, to modern readers, I think it has a whole lot of interest in it. And there is some great poetry in it, but also it can be very long and ponderous and kind of stuffy in some ways because, I mean, you can only read so much about piety and chivalry, (laughs) Um, But it's long been interpreted as containing a lot of allegorical representations of present figures and politics from the Elizabethan era when it was written. I think I was reading about how Spencer, um, he he secured himself a really nice pension from the Elizabethan court by presenting the poem to Queen Elizabeth. Uh, But again, the Demogorgon here does not appear as a main character but sort of as a bit of character for the landscape. So just to read uh, one stanza in which it is invoked. Therefore, desirous, the end of all their days to know and them to enlarge with long extent by wondrous skill and many hidden ways to the three fatal sisters house she went far underground from tract of living went down in the bottom of the deep abyss where Demogorgon in dull darkness pent far from the view of gods and heavens bliss this hideous chaos keeps their dreadful dwelling is hmm. so this character is going she's going down into a into a dark godforsaken place and how do you signal places dark and god-forsaken? how do you show places evil and far from god well you mention it's where the Demogorgon hangs out <laughs> so if the Red Cross Knight stands for piety and holiness the Demogorgon stands for unholiness and satanic chaos.
1: Now, another work that's uh, that's often uh, invoked uh, that mentions uh, the Demogorgon is uh, another 16th century work. It's an Italian epic poem uh, by uh, Lodovico uh, Ariosto uh, titled Orlando Furioso, uh, which is... Um, a poem that con- concerns the knight Orlando, who is uh, known in French traditions as Roland. Uh, now, at least in some versions and translations uh, it it does mention Demogorgon, quote the ruler of fates, uh, but as far as I could tell again he 's just background he 's just texture that's added to this uh, to a particular scene.
0: Alright, so this gets us back to the, the 15th, 16th century. Um, and so we see by then that the demogorgon is being invoked in Uh, literature written by Christians as some kind of infernal demon, some bad thing. Maybe it has something to do with fate. Maybe it has something to do with chaos. And there's an earlier source I came across that's uh, 100 years or so before this. A 14th century Latin encyclopedia of pagan gods and their relationships known as Boccaccio's Genealogia Deorum Gentilium or the Genealogy of the Gods of the Gentiles. Hmm. Uh, This was written by the Italian poet Giovanni. Giovanni Boccaccio, and Boccaccio apparently was commissioned to sort of like put together this, this compendium of all the bad old gods, you know, the, <laughs> the the pagan stuff back then and show their relationships to each other to make a family tree. I found an edition and analysis by Ernest Hatch Wilkins. I actually could not find a an English translation of this. I think there might be one out there somewhere, but maybe it's not available online. Um, but but anyway, uh, Wilkins in this 1927 edition from the University of Chicago Press was discussing uh, what is covered in this book. And apparently in attempting to create a family tree of all pagan gods, Boccaccio regards the Demogorgon as the original pagan deity, like mm. the great-great-grandfather of Jupiter or Zeus from which all other pagan deities are descended. So the, the family tree just starts starts right at the top, Demogorgon.
1: All right. So if you're, if you're looking at you know, various pagan gods from, a, from this Christian standpoint, where pagan gods are a bad thing and perhaps are actually demons, then like, that's where we get into the idea that the Demogorgon is something primal and perhaps uh, uh, vile in nature. Yeah, the very first
0: god. How strange. Now, it turns out this isn't the first reference to a Demogorgon in Christian literature, and we will find an earlier mention of it uh, later on. But before we move on to that, I wanted to talk about what I think is one of the most interesting literary depictions of the Demogorgon, definitely the most interesting I've come across, and it's in Percy Bysshe Shelley's Prometheus Unbound. This is, of course, Mary's husband. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. yes. The husband of the author of Frankenstein, Percy Bysshe Shelley, was a uh, an English Romantic poet. Uh, this is a lyric drama, so it's a drama sort of written in verse. Uh, the, the The play is a response to the Greek myth of Prometheus, and Shelley first published it in eighteen twenty, and he explicitly presented it as this as a response to. The, uh, the play Prometheus Bound by the ancient Greek playwright Aeschylus. So the myth of Prometheus, you might know it well, but just to refresh, it goes something like this. Prometheus was one of a race of deities in ancient Greek religion known as the Titans. And the Titans came before the gods of Olympus. The Titans were offspring from the union of Uranus, the heavens, and Gaia, the earth. And they ruled the earth until Cronus, the king of the Titans, was dethroned and his allies were defeated by his son Zeus and the Olympian gods. This is the War of the Titans or the the Titanomachy. Um, So Prometheus was one of the titans, the son of the titan Iapetus, but he took the side of Zeus in the war between the Olympians and the titans. So he's still around among the Olympian gods. And Zeus, of course, is a creep as (laughs) always. Zeus is – you can just set your watch to it. He's going to be a creep and a jerk. Zeus – doesn't want mortal humans down on earth like us to have power and knowledge like the gods. So he he takes this crucial step in this myth of hiding fire from the humans. He takes fire from the earth, he hides it in Mount Olympus, he says humans can't have it. And Prometheus, the, the titan, instead is sympathetic to humans and so what he does is he steals fire from where Zeus had hidden it on Olympus, and he takes it down to share with the mortals below.
1: And this uh, is a, a trope that we see in various mythologies. So uh, oh, yeah. For instance, there's a, there's a nearly identical role in Chinese myth of the fire driller, uh, who essentially does the same thing. I and mean, then we see this, again, in so many stories. There's some sort of knowledge of, um, you know, some sort of— generally, you know, it's basically technological in nature. Mm-hmm. And it is— taken from the gods one way or the other, borrowed from the gods uh, and bestowed uh, – either bestowed to humans by some benevolent entity like mm-hmm. Prometheus uh, or it is just straight up uh, stolen from the gods by mortals. Well, I, I think I like the Chinese version
0: even better because in that, the god who brings the the fire doesn't – it explicitly brings the technological means to make fire, not mm-hmm. just the fire itself. So the fire drill, of course, you know, yeah. if you ever used a bow drill, it's not so easy. But you can't can make fire that way. I think Prometheus is usually depicted well, as bringing like, like a, a, torch, a burning yeah. branch or something. Yeah, something yeah. like that.
1: And granted, that makes for a much better uh, sculpture or painting, right? <laughs> this naked Titan with the the with with this highly symbolic, uh, you know, f- flaming torch or branch.
0: Uh, but through the years, Prometheus's gift to the humans, I think, is more often interpreted along the lines of the fire driller, where he's. It's not just fire. Prometheus symbolizes the power from the heavens who betrays the, the leader god and brings down general technology and knowledge and power and succor to the humans.
1: Which, uh, it's interesting that, I mean, Prometheus and the figure of Prometheus and the, the figure of, uh, of Satan have a lot in common, right? Oh, kind of, yeah. yeah. Uh, because, I mean, yes, Satan, one of the things that's interesting
0: about the story of Satan in the Garden of Eden is that Satan does not lie to the humans. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's presented as doing bad, but he he encourages them to uh to violate god's law in the garden and eat from the tree that is forbidden to them but he says you can eat from this tree and you will not die as you've been told you will and it it turns out it's true they eat and it doesn't kill them except you could make the argument that maybe well maybe it makes them mortal in the long
1: run but I mean basically he's a disruptor yeah. to put it in like silicon valley terms right like he's he's trying to disrupt uh, creation <laughs> Um, But
0: so in the Greek myth, of course, Prometheus being nice to the humans and betraying Zeus, both the mortals and Prometheus are punished for this. The punishment for humans is a sequence of events that leads to the opening of Pandora's box, out of which flow all the hardships and frailty of human life. You get plague. You get toil to survive, all that stuff, and a little bit of hope left over, I guess. Yeah, in in the bottom, right? (laughs) uh, Prometheus is punished in a more explicit way. He is bound to a rock in the Caucasus Mountains. And not only is he chained up, but Zeus sends a nasty eagle to peck out his liver each day. And unfortunately, Prometheus is immortal, so his liver, as an immortal liver, just keeps regenerating. And the eagle can fly back and peck it out and eat it again the next day. Sounds like a bad deal.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a bad deal. But I don't know, as far as, like, uh, you know, offending Zeus goes, I guess it could have been worse. I guess so. Now, in response to this myth... Shelley, Percy Bysshe Shelley,
0: in his play takes up the banner of Prometheus and he makes him a heroic figure in the play. And and I would say this is not surprising because you could definitely say that Percy Shelley was of a revolutionary temperament, theologically, politically, and in literature. He was very against the old ways and the old powers and the authorities and for sort of disruption and revolution and doing things in a new way. Now, the plot of Shelley's play is kind of abstract and sort of loaded with characters and images of ponderous meaningfulness. So uh, so I'm going to try to do a short summary leaving aside all the, the stuff that takes us in other directions and focusing on how the Demogorgon comes in. So Prometheus is – we find him in this state where he's bound up by uh, – Zeus, It's Jupiter in this play but this is the same figure, the king of the gods, uh, bound up and tortured by Jupiter for bringing knowledge to the mortals. And In Shelley's version, it is explicitly not just fire but general knowledge and aid. And There are two other deities who are sympathetic pr- to Prometheus and they want to help him. These are the sisters Asia and Panthea and they attempt to free Prometheus from his bondage. Asia is a sea nymph who is actually the beloved of Prometheus and Panthea is her sister. Led by a dream, the two of them venture into the underworld and they meet a character called the Demogorgon who is portrayed as a kind of supremely powerful but also strangely passive and kind of inert force of fate and nothingness who is also the son of Jupiter. Now, when they first come across uh, uh, the Demogorgon, the character of Panthea describes him this way. She says – I see a mighty darkness filling the seat of power, and rays of gloom dart round as light from the meridian sun, ungazed upon and shapeless, neither limb nor form nor outline, yet we feel it is a living spirit. This is very different from the
1: D&D Demogorgon. Right. Yeah, this is more like uh, primordial soup of the deity.
0: Yeah. So they say that they sense there is a living presence down in the abyss with them— And there's a mighty darkness, there's something in the gloom, but they can't see that it has any kind of shape or body. And then Panthea and Asia have a consultation with the Demogorgon. They ask him questions, and the Demogorgon reveals to them that Jupiter created the world with all the good and the bad that it entails. And also that even Jupiter himself is not all-powerful because, in the words of the Demogorgon, quote, All spirits are enslaved which serve things evil. And he says to Asia, Thou knowest if Jupiter be such or no. And of (laughs) course, Asia knows that even though Jupiter is the chief god, Jupiter still does things that are evil. He serves evil. So there must be some kind of power over him because all things that serve evil have some power over them. So what is even Jupiter subject to? Well, the Demogorgon answers that too. If the abysm could vomit forth its secrets, but a voice is wanting, the deep truth is imageless, for what would it avail to bid thee gaze on the revolving world? What to bid speak fate, time, occasion, chance, and change? To these all things are subject, but eternal love
1: ah love that's the <laughs> the fifth element
0: I guess it is yeah. so, so even Jupiter the ultimate God of everything is subject to the power of love uh, sounds kind of cheesy but then but then Asia is like okay well I love Prometheus so when will he be freed uh, like uh, when shall the destined hour arrive for Prometheus to be to be freed and the demogorgon just says. Behold! Oh. Exclamation point. So then immediately the Demogorgon travels to heaven where Jupiter is the – Jupiter, the chief god, is in the middle of a big speech about how awesome he is. And the Demogorgon appears and then he just, he just messes up Jupiter. He casts him down. Uh, he destroys the tyrant creator god. And then Prometheus can be freed by Hercules and reunited with Asia. That's quite a climax. Well, but it's not the climax. Somehow, <laughs> this is not the end of the play. This is like Act Three of a five-act <laughs> play. After this, it seems—I've never read the thing in full. I admit, I've read some passages. It seems like after this, there is a lot of like sort of um, windy pontificating about love and virtues and, and what is good and right. But anyway, I think the demogorgon's role in this story is very interesting. It, it, he's, it, well, so I kept saying he, but the demogorgon actually, one thing that's been pointed out by scholars is that the demogorgon is never given a gender, mm-hmm. uh, in, in Percy's play, uh, in, in other sources. It is. I think assumed to be a he, but right. uh, there's, no, there's no gender in Prometheus Unbound. So the Demogorgon, whoever they are, whatever they are, is depicted as an, some kind of infernal phantom of the underworld but also a liberating force for positive good, overthrowing the tyrannical order of creation at the appointed hour. Uh, Though interestingly, I would say the Demogorgon doesn't really seem to act out of their own volition. It's almost as if um, they are somehow triggered into this act by the visit from Asia and Panthea. Like it's the love for Prometheus from Asia that was fated to precede the appointed hour of Jupiter's destruction and the liberation of the world. Hmm. Another thing that's interesting here about Shelley's work— so we talked about how the Demogorgon does not actually come from Greek mythology even though he's being retro inserted into like classical mythology here, Greek and Roman kind of blended mythology here. Um, what would the word Demogorgon mean if it actually were a Greek word? Well, you've got the apparent roots demos and gorgon.
1: Like the people 's Gorgon, yeah, like democracy, yeah, and, and then Gorgon again, the monster the the uh, of which Medusa is a member of the uh, the species, but actually the
0: gorgon name for Medusa. That has a root in Greek too. It's from the word gorgos, which means something like terrible or grim, mm. you know, terror-inducing. So the demogorgon could literally be translated as the people's terror, huh. like the terror of the masses of people, which is a very interesting intersection with the idea of like a long-faded revolution to dethrone tyrant kings and unworthy gods. And of course we know uh Percy Shelley was a supporter of the French Revolution. He believed in atheism. He believed in republicanism, not to be confused with like the Republican Party of today. Just Like in the context of the time, that was representative government as opposed to monarchy. Um, and so I think it could be tempting to think of like – The French Revolution as Shelley's demogorgon, the people's terror, like this inevitable swell of justice that washes tyrants from their thrones but at the same time contains a terrifying and mighty darkness that can't really be seen or understood.
1: Hmm. I like that. The people's terror.
0: (laughs) I mean, yeah. I don't know. I I don't know if if Shelley himself would have seen that that comparison because I think he he may have had a more— I don't know a less nuanced view of the guillotine, say. <laughs> huh.
1: And of course, this introduces the idea of uh, the Demogorgon as, uh, as as being like poten- a potential, like political candidate. Yeah. Uh, if perhaps in uh, in our upcoming elections. Yeah. Uh, if, if you're if you're you know, inclined to use a right in candidate, mm-hmm. go with Demogorgon twenty twenty.
0: The just rage of the people that is without form or
1: shape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, one more uh, example of Demogorgon popping up in. in uh, in in a, in a work of literature, uh, is a is a, a story essentially a short story from Voltaire. Hmm. Vol, Voltaire lived 1694 through 1778, and uh, I'd never read this one before. I'd read I'd read some works of Voltaire in the past, um, um, but uh, at any rate, this one is t- titled "Plato's Dream," uh, in which the Demogorgon is presented as a genie who witnesses the initial creation. Um, of the world by uh, this primordial force uh, called the Demiurge, and along with its fellow genies, uh, the Demogorgon is granted a portion of the creation to then then finish into a functioning world. Uh, The Demogorgon (laughs) is given the task of creating Earth and uh, and is then critiqued and criticized by his fellow genies for making such a mixed-up planet. And so there's a, a part here I want to quote uh, where the Demogorgon responds to his critics and says, quote, It is an easy matter to find fault, good folks, said the genie. But do you imagine it is so easy to form an animal who, having the gift of reason and free will, shall not sometimes abuse his liberty? Do you think that in rearing between nine and ten thousand different plants it is so easy to prevent some few from having noxious qualities? (laughs) Do you suppose that with a certain quantity of water, sand, and mud, you could make a globe that should have neither seas nor deserts? As for you, my sneering Friend, I think you have just finished the planet Jupiter. Let us see now what figure you make with your great belts and your long nights, with four moons to enlighten them. Let us examine your worlds and see whether the inhabitants you have made are exempt from follies or diseases. I guess we'll just have to wait for the Europa probe to inform <laughs> us on <laughs> to resolve this one. Right. So uh, there's not much to really, I, I feel like, uncover in this one, uh, but. There are there's at least one detail in this that will become critical uh, in our next section uh, of, of the podcast. After we come back from a break, we will get into the true abyssal origins of the Demogorgon. Today's
0: episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. All right, we're back. So we've charted the path of the Demogorgon through much uh, literature throughout especially the the Christian world and its role in some interesting sort of uh, revolutionary sentiments as expressed through literature like Prometheus Unbound or in Voltaire's story. But we're trying to find the origin of this. Where does the Demogorgon actually come from if it doesn't come from classic Greek mythology?
1: Well, the origin is discussed in a 1964 book titled The Discarded Image, an Introduction to Medieval and Renaissance Literature, uh, written by none other than C.S. Lewis. Oh, okay. In fact, it was C.S. Lewis's last book before he died, and it deals with medieval cosmology. Mm-hmm. He turns our attention to the fourth book of the Thebaid by Stadius I. Uh, Stadius lived uh, uh, CE 45 through 96. And this is an epic poem written in Latin about the Theban cycle, and uh, here the author to a deity that shall not be named, a, quote, sovereign of the threefold world. And then early Christian author uh, Lactantius, who lived 250 through 325, wrote a commentary on this work and stated that Stadius was referring, in in fact, to the Greek uh, 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 demi-organ, or creator, quote, the God whose name it is unlawful to know. (laughs) So we're talking, yeah. So demiurgon, okay, from which we get uh, demogorgon, and uh, and then Lewis writes the following to sum this up: "Quote. This is plain sailing. The demiurge or workman being the creator in the Timaeus, but there are two variants in the manuscripts. One is demogorgana, the other demogorgon. Mm. From the later of these corruptions, later ages evolved a completely new deity." Demogorgon, who was to enjoy a distinguished literary career in Boccaccio's Genealogy of the Gods in Spencer, in Milton, and in Shelley. This is perhaps the only time a scribal blunder underwent an apotheosis. Oh, that's amazing.
0: Uh, and just – so in, in a mythological context, of course, apotheosis here refers to the process of a human being being deified or something being made into a higher being like a god or a star or heavenly object being taken up into heaven. Uh, ancient kings were sometimes made into gods and legendary heroes like Hercules sometimes lived lives that were so worthy or so notable They were assumed into the pantheon and became gods. So I think that's what he's saying here is that somebody made a blunder in copying a manuscript or in translating Uh it, in understanding what a word meant in, in an older book. And through that scribal error, we got a brand new deity such that, you know, a thousand years later, Boccaccio would say this deity is the original Mac daddy deity like the number (laughs) like the pagan god before all the other ones and it just comes from a mistranslation or misreading of a word.
1: Right. And the the word that was misread or, or mistranslated is the Demiurge. Which, uh, which, curiously enough, is cited in that Voltaire short story, right?
0: So it seems like Voltaire was kind of on the right track with the association here, uh, and and this is great because the demiurge is one of my favorite characters from any mythology in the world, uh, but but his, its role is complicated and varies across different traditions, including like Platonic schools of philosophy and and religion uh, in the you know in the centuries following Plato's actual teachings, and in various Gnostic. Religions. I'll try to give a general summary that applies to multiple lines of tradition that have sort of similar attributes. But just be aware that there are a lot of different things that are all sort of versions of the demiurge. The word demiurge, uh, as uh, as Lewis mentioned, comes from the Greek. In its original form, it's just a common noun that means something like craftsman. Mm -hmm. You know, it's somebody who makes things, sculptor, maker, producer. But within these religious points of view or in in these philosophies and cosmologies, the Demiurge is a figure that creates the material world, is the creator. But apart from many other religions, this does not mean that he is the ultimate creator god or that he is good. He is, I would say, variously portrayed as, as everything ranging from kind of neutral and bumbling to actively malevolent. And to give an example from one strain of Gnosticism, in the Gnostic text known as the Apocryphon of John, the Demiurge figure is this foolish, arrogant, wicked deity called Yaldabaoth who creates the material bodies of humans. I think he also maybe creates the material world or some aspects of it. Um, And humans, the humans that he created end up with souls when they are inadvertently contaminated by a spark or a light from the higher, nobler plane of being known as the pleroma, which means something like fullness. And so you've got the pleroma, the fullness, the real world, the real greater place which is is immaterial in nature and then you've got the the crappy material world that Yaldabaoth made and now we're stuck in that thing. And Yaldabaoth resents the fact that humans have this spark from the Pleroma and tries to fight against it. So to do so, he tries to keep humans confused and in the dark so we're always fumbling around in this kind of baffling material hell which is our everyday world. And the Gnostics within this tradition believe that you can only escape the horrors of the material world by becoming privy to secret knowledge. That knowledge is the gnosis, the secret knowledge that explains the real world and this is this is how you transcend. The secret mythology, the secret rituals uh, that give you access to the true fuller reality behind this material illusion that controls our lives. And you can actually see a connection to Platonic philosophy, even if this sounds like a very kind of strange, complicated, theological take on, on the creation of the world, it sounds a lot like Plato's Cave, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, and also like the, the basic spirit of this— is also reflected in other faiths. I mean, the, the idea of there being a secret reality of yeah. there of there being some sort of cycle that we need to break free from. I mm-hmm. mean, um, you see that in uh, say you uh, know uh, uh, Hindu and Buddhist traditions. Yeah, and this idea of the, you know, the the spark of something more divine being like trapped in the mud of our bodies. I mean, you see that also reflected in, in even more recent creations like Scientology. Oh, totally.
0: I, I think yeah, absolutely. I would say Gnostic theology reflects something that is a very common belief among humans. And you can see how often it appears not just in other religions but in all kinds of pop culture i mean e- echoes of the gnostic worldview bounce around constantly even through contemporary culture whether we are conscious of it or not and whether the creators of these pieces of culture are conscious of it or not if i mean if you've seen the matrix mm-hmm. you already have a sort of baseline understanding of gnostic cosmology you just replace the evil computers and the agents with like cosmic realms and wicked archons like the demiurge the demiurge sort of created a material matrix for us to live in when in reality we are beings from this better immaterial world and we have to find ways to escape and get back to it.
1: So you're saying we are stardust, we are golden, we are billion year old carbon and we have to find our way back to the garden.
0: Yes, but you can only get back to the garden if you teach your children well because (laughs) it is the secret knowledge that is required to get you there Mm -hmm. and most people are never going to be let in on the secret. They're just sort of going about their, you know, their everyday life toiling after material things without understanding that the material world is bad and fake but i love this idea that the demiurge uh, being this creator of the material world who's at the at the very least bumbling and at worst some kind of devilish thing that that hates us and wants to trick us into living bad wrong lives I could see this mistranslation leading to the creation of the Demogorgon figure being an excellent modern reworking of the Gnostic theology and being a part of that Demiurgis plan. Like the Demiurge hides the true Gnosis about its wicked role in creating the material world and these filthy bodies of ours by causing a scribal error that hides its existence. And instead, it gets everybody focused on this fake, illusory uh, demon or primordial god, the Demogorgon. And then you're scared of the Demogorgon or you're in awe of its primeval darkness and shapeless presence. So you forget that you need to be seeking the Gnosis to escape this wretched unreality. Uh, And uh, yeah,
1: yeah, I mean if you ultimately if you're trying to in- envision the ultimate evil power in a uh, in a in a fantasy world. Uh yeah, this this sounds like the this is the the prince of demons right here. <laughs> you know, I
0: weirdly kept thinking about the demiurge when we were recently talking about that book I read by Philip Ball about uh quantum mechanics oh, Yeah, that, that uh, is called uh Beyond Weird. It's a great book. It's a new book from this year or last year about uh, quantum mechanics and one of the things that I think is really great about the book is it doesn't let you off the hook. It doesn't just let you say, "Wow, quantum mechanics sure does seem weird," and then kind of shake your head and move on. Like mm-hmm. it, it tries to force you to look at it. It does the the thing from like um, Clockwork Orange, where it holds <laughs> your eyelids <laughs> open yeah. and, and says, "No, look at this. Um, pay attention." And you know, one of the things you, you walk away from that with is that okay, you know, I'm not saying that physical reality isn't real, but it it makes you think that whatever way we're interacting with the world on a day-to-day basis you know the the kind of reality we perceive with like objects you can touch and and see and and know their place and all that that, that is not the ultimate like arbiter of what reality is. Like your perception of reality is not necessarily the most accurate way of understanding reality even though it, you know, it seems to work good enough to get you through life, so how could it be wrong? But yet we, you know, we do experiments in physics all the time now that uh, that just show you over and over again that the way you have of making sense of the world is some kind of derivative second order mm. kind of uh, grasp of physics. So you have no intuitive way of understanding Understanding quantum reality, you know what happens before decoherence and everything.
1: So that ultimately, there is this, there is this deeper truth in the universe. Yeah, uh, that that we are not inherently privy to. We're only privy to it via uh, technology, via science. Uh, these are essentially gnostic tools of, uh, <laughs> of elevation. That's how you get
0: the gnosis: is you do a double slit experiment. <laughs>
1: Well, I've enjoyed this uh, this journey that we've taken, you know, uh, because it feels—I uh, uh, mean, part of it seems like the, the, the natural destination for an exploration of the organ, that it would tie back to this primordial uh, being that's wrapped in Gnostic mystery. But on the other hand, I love that it also hinges incredibly upon uh, just a scribal blunder, uh-huh. you know, that it's— uh, it's it's this thing that was actually you know, it was never really real in the way that we uh we might uh you know attribute it uh, as having been it was never actually uh, an entity that was uh, worshipped or even factored into any actual myth cycle
0: no it is holy without shape and out of the darkness yeah. it is the figure that asia and panthea uh go to visit and you know it just waits there until its hour comes round at last
1: yeah Yeah, and uh, I also love how we got to – let's see if we got to to turn to Joni Mitchell, Crosby, (laughs) Sills, and Nash, uh, C.S. Lewis, um, Milton, and, of course, Gary Gygax uh, to understand (laughs) it all.
0: A wonderful motley crew for those wooden ships on the water.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to close it out right there. But obviously – uh, I imagine a number of you have thoughts about the Demogorgon, either the, the Netflix version or the Dungeons and Dragons incarnation, or perhaps some of the the, the literary uh, incarnations that we've discussed here as well. And of course, we would love to hear from you. Uh, but stay tuned, because again, this entire month of October is going to be uh, uh, Halloween themed, uh, as it has been in the past. Uh, we're going to have uh, all new monstrosities to consider, uh, tying in uh, as much science as we possibly can can't.
0: Have we ever done an episode on the science of Medusa? Uh, snakes for hair? Is there something there? Something? Ooh, I don't know. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've
1: covered... I, I, I at least blogged about Medusa back in the day and I think I did maybe a monster science video about Medusa but that would be an interesting one to 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 explore again uh because the Medusa is a is a fascinating monster and then some of the things we've done with the Medusa uh, are kind of monstrous uh yeah I could I would be up for a, a Medusa exploration bring it all right. In the meantime, if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is uh, make sure you have subscribed and then rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. And don't forget about invention. Monsters are great, but the real monster is always human endeavor <laughs> and human invention. And that's what we we explore. Invention is a journey through human techno history. Uh, really, it's a it's a celebration, uh, or at least a contemplation. In some, in many cases, of uh, the fire of Prometheus.
0: Yeah, uh, the things
1: we made, how they made. Us where they came from, yeah. So, uh, make sure you have checked that show out as well and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Helps us out.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you have any feedback on this episode and would like to share it with us, if you'd like to get in touch just to say hi or suggest a topic for the future, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind dot com.